What do you believe about what is original sin? What's the difference between a priest and a pastor? What is original sin? How do I do penance? Why do we structure the mass? What about penance? Is purgatory what about real? How does the church make what do you believe about the holy orders? What do we give How as the Can I pray to Mary and the saints? What, what do you believe about baptism? What do you believe about baptism? What is original holy why don't we take communion every week? What do we do in the Well, hello, everybody. I want to uh, welcome you to this final uh, week of the series we've been calling Catholic Questions. It's been a phenomenal uh, three weeks of just kind of learning and dialogue with our Catholic friends and neighbors. We've been kind of comparing, contrasting the beliefs of the evangelical uh, church with Roman Catholicism. And I've, and I've learned a ton myself, but the past few days uh, took the cake. Uh, I was contacted by Father Brian, who is a local priest who serves down the road uh, here in Morristown at St. Margaret's Roman Catholic Church of Scotland. It is a gorgeous church, and uh, he emailed me just to share some of his thoughts uh, about our series. Uh, I wanted to clarify a few points, and I appreciate that. Father Brian's an outstanding guy, um, and he said, you know, I just want to kind of have a dialogue and, 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 and clarify a few things. So, so I said, you know, instead of emails, hey, let's meet for coffee. So he invited me over on Tuesday, and we spent three hours together, and it was the most incredible experience. Um, he gave me a tour of St. Margaret's, which was founded in 1848. And the church was initially named for the Assumption of Mary, but about 40 years later, it was renamed St. Margaret uh, uh, Church for the Queen of Scotland. And although predominantly kind of served, not surprisingly, in New Jersey, mostly an Irish-Italian kind of constituency, in recent years, it's been augmented by kind of new waves of immigrants from Central and Latin America. So today, St. Margaret's conducts both English and uh, uh, Spanish masses, and they have a very vibrant ministry right down the street from us. Uh, total honor to get schooled by a priest. Father Brian, if, uh, if you're watching, thank you for that. Uh, I think I learned more, honestly, in our three hours together than another 30 hours in the library, uh, real candidly. Uh, during the tour, he, he, he gave me a tour. He, he showed me why Catholics uh, genuflect or, or bend their knees but, you know, before the altar. We'll get into that in a minute. He pointed out the tabernacle. I don't know if you've seen this. That's the locked box where the Eucharist or the host is stored there. Uh, I learned why Catholics pray to the saints and Mary. And uh, he, he said, you know, we don't worship Mary. We venerate the Blessed Virgin. There's a like, fine line there. Uh, and I even got to sit in the confessional booth and, uh, you know, get a few things off my chest. So I appreciate that. That was great. Uh, can we thank Father Brian? Thank you for that, sir. We are very grateful to you uh, for that, You're, especially his, his, his generosity and friendship, because his explanations were actually illuminating. It helped for, for me to collect a lot of dots. And he was very gracious about the broad brushstrokes that we've been painting in. Because that's one of the obvious challenges of a series like this. I mean, how can you hope to accurately convey all the nuances of a, of a faith tradition that is literally thousands of years old and has gone through countless iterations over the centuries. And, and do, do all of that while looking in from the outside. The answer is you can't. And uh, I think you guys get that, that we're taking a very general kind of introduction, a bird's eye view, as it were, of the Catholic faith. And to do that from a biblical perspective. Um, in a lot of ways, what we've been doing, you've, you've, you've probably figured this out, we've been looking at the basics of the gospel. What it means to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And the whole point is to begin a conversation and develop new friendships with Catholic friends and family. We want you guys to be in dialogue, not a duel. Ah, oh, 
okay, with our Catholic friends and neighbors. Remember, our goal is not to build walls, but to kind of build bridges and find common ground where we can without whitewashing the fact that we do have obvious, distinct doctrinal differences. And and I want to thank Father Brian for the time we shared, because I was like totally excited to learn even more. Um, In fact, it was really cool. In preparation for their Easter vigil, St. Margaret's is hosting a living stations of the cross in Morristown on Good Friday. He said, it's amazing. We closed down Speedwell, and people from our church, um, they actually get dressed up and and, and portray, represent the scenes from Christ's passion. He said, we'd love for you to come. So I'm going to take my daughter, Chase, uh, in, in the hope that she's going to see, you know, the passion of Christ played out before her eyes with, with, with fresh, uh, you know, relevance and, and see the sacrifice of Christ endured. So that's on Good Friday, April 2nd at 12 noon. Want to let you know you're welcome to join us. We start on the green. So I'm thankful for Father Brian. We're really grateful to have the ministry of St. Margaret's and proud that we can serve our city together. So thank you, sir. Um, now today we're going to get to the very essence of what it does mean to be Catholic with a look at the Eucharist or what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. And fittingly, we're going to conclude our series today by celebrating communion at each of our campuses. Um, it's very interesting. Whenever you enter a Roman Catholic church or cathedral, you are drawn, your eyes are like dialed into the altar where you might see like a monstrance. That's what this is, where, where, where the host may be, uh, you know, the, way, the communion wafer is actually displayed there in, in moments of veneration. And symbolically and literally, the mass is at the center of the Catholic experience. Catholics are required, encouraged to attend mass uh, each week. Going daily is even better. Imagine going to church every day. And, uh, and the Eucharist, or Holy Communion, is the primary act of the service. It is more important than the sermon. I know. I was like, really? But this is what feeds people. It's like, no. He's like, no, this is what feeds people. No, this feeds people, oh, you know, kind of thing. And that practice comes from that, the moment when Jesus celebrated Passover, or, or the Last Supper, with his disciples before he was crucified. I want to look at this account directly from the Bible. So if you want to grab your Bible with me, you'll find it in each of the Gospels. But the Apostle Paul gives a great summary in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover. And all you need to know about that is it was this Jewish festival that commemorated the Jews' escape, their exodus from Egypt. And it takes its name from the book of Exodus, where God sent 10 plagues on the Egyptians. Some of you know this, this story. Before Pharaoh released the Hebrew people from slavery. The 10th plague was the killing of all the firstborn in Egypt, from Pharaoh's son to the firstborn calf of, you know, the cows. And the Hebrew people, they were instructed by God to take a spotless lamb, to kill it, and take its blood and mark the doorposts of their homes. And upon seeing this, the Spirit of the Lord passed over their homes and saved them, hence the term Passover. You get that? So Passover was an annual Jewish celebration. It was like, this is the moment God saved us. This is when he delivered us from slavery. And every Jew historically made an annual pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And that's what Jesus and his disciples are eating here, the Passover meal. Um, Here's the interesting thing. It, It included roast lamb, obviously, because a lamb was involved in sacrifice. But it also included wine and unleavened bread. Notice that's very, very flat bread. I don't know if you can see that. It's flat, it's flat bread. And the reason why is because the idea was the Jews left Egypt so quickly, they didn't even have time for the bread to rise. There was no yeast in it, so it never rose. So that's why Jews actually have matzah bread, because it's a reminder of the hasty exodus out of Egypt. So that's where we get the bread and the wine that are central elements in the, in the Lord's Supper. Now read this with me. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. The Lord Jesus... On the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And with these words, Jesus literally transformed, infused the Passover meal with a brand new meaning. For thousands of years, it had meant one thing, and Jesus said it's about to mean something new. For thousands of years, when a Jewish person sinned, the only way that God would forgive their sin was by offering the sacrifice of an animal. So people bring lambs and goats to church. Imagine we bring in the cattle, you know, here in, in, in church, right? Kind of, a, kind of mess. And it was the sign of the, the covenant, that's the agreement that they made with God. When an animal shed its blood, he promised to forgive the sins of the person who offered it. And so sacrifices, they had to be repeated day after day, year after year. But Jesus said, I'm giving you a new covenant with my blood. And under this new agreement, Jesus said, I will be sacrificed for your sins. Unlike the blood of animals, Jesus' blood, because he is God, would remove the sins of everyone who had faith in him once and for all. And as a symbol of that sacrifice, and to help his disciples like remember what he was about to do on the cross, he took the Passover bread, and he said, this is about what's going to happen in a few hours. My body's going to be broken in half for you. Me, for you. And with a cup of wine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Shed the forgiveness of your sins. He wanted to communicate memorably about what his sacrifice was about to do. And he gave these two powerful reminders of what it really takes to forgive sin. You get the parallel? You getting this? So at the Exodus, the shed blood of a lamb saves all the firstborn sons from death. On the cross, God's only son, John called Jesus the Lamb of God, sheds his blood to save us from spiritual death. It's a new Exodus. He literally is going to free us. I'm going to free you, he said to his disciples, from the bondage of sin. So with these powerful words and symbols, Jesus gives this new covenant to be made right with God. And he said, hey, after I'm gone, this is how I want you to remember me. Remember what I did for you forever, every time. Paul writes, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Now to really grasp the profound meaning of these elements, I want to show you a clip from the Passion of the Christ. And I've been giving parents you kind of a heads up just because these are graphic and in pretty intense scenes. So just a heads up for your kids to make sure that they're mature enough. Um, but this, this is a powerful one because it intertwines the disciple John's memory of the Passover meal with Jesus, with Jesus' literal body broken and his blood shed on the cross. Kabilule wa'okulu tenau kishmi Stay. 
stuff. Every time we receive the cup and break bread together, Christians around the world are reminded the body of Christ broken for you, his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. That's what these elements commemorate, their their memory. And that's honestly how we are united because we see this as central to our faith. But here's the deal. Both Protestants and Catholics, while we're united on the sacrifice of Jesus for sins— we both believe something very different happens during the communion celebration. In the Catholic tradition at the Mass, at the moment of consecration, in other words, when the words are spoken, this is my body, this is my blood, Catholics are taught that the wafer and the wine are literally changed at that moment into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. Have you heard of this? The doctrine is called, I'm going to give you a big SAT word here, transubstantiation. Are you ready? Fancy word, and you can get what it means. It just means the substance literally transforms. It changes. It becomes something different. So in other words, this is not just a symbol. This is the blood of Christ. This is not just a wafer. This is his body. Jesus is in here. In other words, somehow the inner substance, although they don't change appearance, the inner essence is mysteriously changed. And that's why the Eucharist is central to the Mass. Because Catholics believe this is Jesus himself. He is literally present right here in this room. Once again, I'll turn to Father John Ricardo of St. Anastasia Roman Catholic Church to explain. So we would say the Eucharist is truly Jesus. He's, he's, really, he's substantially there. But he's hidden himself. Just like he hid himself under the appearance of flesh. And he was really flesh. But he wasn't only man. So we would say that the Lord has chosen to hide himself under the appearance of bread and wine. But he's, he's not really, it's not really bread and wine. It just looks like it. That's why we would call it transubstantiation. The substance has changed, right. even though the accidents remain. Is it literally him? No. It's sacramentally him. If Jesus were to walk into the church while Mass was going on, he wouldn't look like a host. We'd be down on our face by his majesty. Mm. So this idea that, that Christ is actually present in the Eucharist, he's, he's present, is a huge point of difference between Catholics and Protestants. That's one of the reasons if you go to Mass, you will see a priest hold up the cup for everybody to see and literally to hold up the host for everybody to see, because after it's consecrated in a very real way, it's actually Jesus. I will read you the uh, dogma from uh, the fundamentals of Catholic dogma. It says, the Eucharist is that sacrament in which Christ, under the forms of bread and wine, is truly present with his body and blood in order to give himself in an unbloody manner to the Heavenly Father and to give himself to the faithful as nourishment for their souls. It was fascinating because as I was visiting with Father Brian, he said, Tim, this is why Catholics genuflect. He goes, that's, that's why when they enter church, and, and I noticed none of you did it, if you can follow me down here, Ron, they get down on a bended knee and cross themselves. 
Because he said, what would you do in your church if Jesus walked in through the back doors? He goes, I presume you would be bowing down and worshiping him. That's what we're doing because this is literally Jesus. We are, we are paying homage. We are, we are worshiping him. Now notice two things. Not only do Catholics say that Jesus is literally present, but he also is being sacrificed again in the mass for the salvation of people. Now Protestants would say, we'd say, interesting, um, but that's respectfully not what Jesus meant at all. <laughs> we'd say, the, the bread and wine are just as they were, were, were given. They're symbols they represent his sacrifice for sure, but they don't literally change into the actual body of Christ. That's why we use grape juice off the supermarket shelf, not to rob the mystery of it, but that's what we use. <laughs> okay, it's not special wine. I mean, it would cause some problems, wouldn't it, if this was literally Jesus? My, my wife, Colleen, tells a story of going to make her first Holy Communion. Uh, some of you have fond memories of this, yeah. Important rite of passage for Catholics. It's when a Catholic first receives the Eucharist for the first time. You'll see young girls, kind of even right now around Easter, they'll dress in white dresses, symbolize purity, and the whole family comes out to kind of witness this event. And my wife, Colleen, Irish, you know, Italian, all Catholic, she was seven years old at the time. And uh, you don't just like, okay, today I'm going to receive communion. You had to practice it. And she had a nun assigned to teach Colleen, and her name was Sister Mary Ellen. And she was a little, you know, breaking all the stereotypes. She was a little strict. Because she had to teach these seven-year-olds how you receive the blessed sacrament. My wife says it was amazing. She said, because, you know, we were so nervous. We were taught, you know, you walk forward with your hands folded. And then when you get up to the priest, you cup your hands so that he could either put the, the, the host in your hands or on your tongue, in your mouth. So my wife, she said, I was only seven at the time, and I was, I was so nervous because this was Jesus. She said, I got up there. She goes, I got cotton mouth. You know what I'm talking about? You get nervous. She goes, my mouth was all dry. And so when the priest put the wafer in her mouth... She closed and went, making all these faces. And Sister Mary Ellen said, Colleen Christian McCabe, what are you doing? And my poor wife goes, Jesus is stuck to the woof of my mouth. And, 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 and she started getting prying away for, from the roof of her mouth. And Sister Mary said, swallow the Savior, swallow the Savior, you know. And you can imagine, for, for a seven-year-old... The confusion. Because they've got Jesus and, you know, they chew him or swallow. It's, so my wife gets, starts, you know, she gets very nervous around communion day, you know. You see, there are really two problems with this doctrine of transubstantiation, which, again, is at the center of the faith. And it was, it was conformed, actually, only 800 years ago in 1215. So it's, not, it's actually fairly recent in the scope of history. But the first is, I mean, beyond the empirical evidence, obviously, what you can see, it's just not what the Bible teaches, Specifically, it's not in the literary context that Jesus typically taught throughout the Gospels. You guys know that Jesus was the master of the metaphor. He constantly was using symbols, telling parables to communicate spiritual truth. Last week, we talked about how he said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. Now, we know Jesus wasn't a shepherd. By trade, he was a carpenter. And his followers weren't literally sheep, although I'm sure some of them, you know, smelled and weren't that smart. <laughs> the point is... Jesus used figurative, that's like a pastor joke. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus used figurative language all the time in his teaching. And just because he made a comparison, it didn't mean that it would be interpreted literally. For instance, in the Gospel of John, where he says, this is my body, this is my blood. He also says, I am the vine. I am the gate. And no Catholic theologian takes these statements literally. You know, they don't say, well, oh, look at that. That's amazing. Jesus must have you know, leaves and hinges and is made of wood. Nobody says that because it'd be silly. Everyone understands he was speaking figuratively and using a symbol to make a point. When he says, I'm the vine, he's basically saying, 
you need to stay connected to me. You're going to draw your life from me, and that's how you're going to bear fruit. I'm the gate. You want to know how to get into heaven? You go explicitly through me, directly through me. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. It goes one way through me. Does it make sense? It's a metaphor. It's symbolic language that he uses to make a point, and this was how Jesus taught all throughout Scripture. Analogies, parables, symbols that communicate spiritual truth. And here's the deal. Most people understood that. In fact, a religious teacher named Nicodemus once made the mistake of interpreting his uh, metaphors literally. In John 3, Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is, what's the phrase? Born again. Yeah, that's why evangelicals would call themselves, we'd call ourselves born again. Through faith in Christ, we are spiritually reborn. We're first physically born, but then we're, we undergo a second birth. We're spiritual rebirth. And Nicodemus, though, looked at that and he's like, oh, that, this is a strange thing. And he took Jesus' words literally. He said, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I've done the biology. This doesn't work. And Jesus is like, come on, you know? Come on. I don't mean literally. And he explained that he's like, I'm speaking figuratively about a spiritual reality. So in the context of Jesus' figurative teaching, for us, the bread and wine, these are very, very important symbols of Jesus' body and blood. But they're not his actual body and blood. They're representations of Christ's sacrifice. In fact, that's a, that's a good way to think about it. If you want to think about it this way, Protestants look at this, and, and, and Protestants would, would simply say, that's exactly what we're doing. Those elements, they represent the body and blood of Christ. They are a powerful, powerful symbol. But the Roman Catholic Church would say, oh, that's not it at all. The Roman Catholic Church would say, at the Mass, we are literally representing the sacrifice of Jesus. We are ritually going to reenact the sacrifice that he made. And in a very real way, we're going to see a sacrifice made right now here in church. That's why we're offering you grace. You can be forgiven through this sacrifice. You're following with me. And the reality is this. We would simply point to the plain meaning of Scripture and say, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Communion's a memorial service. The symbols help us remember his sacrifice on the cross. And don't diminish this because symbols are still powerful. For instance, whose picture do you have on your desk or, or in your locker or wherever? On my desk, I have a picture of my wife and I on our wedding day. And I look at that, and it reminds me of her. It reminds me of the day we fell in love. It reminds me of the day we got married. It reminds me of the day I was 20 pounds lighter. I look at that and I go, oh, wow. <laughs> and when I look at her picture, you know what happens when I actually look at her picture on desk? I feel affection. My heart warms for her. Because why? It represents our relationship. This makes sense? Now, this picture's not actually Colleen. She's, she's in the picture, but she's not in the picture. You know what I'm talking about? So when I, when I feel affection, I don't, I, don't, I don't kiss the picture on my desk. I go home and kiss my wife. Communion, remember me, is supposed to serve the same purpose. It's one of the ways that we remember the price of love. We, we remember the enormous cost. It costs Jesus to make us his bride. We're remembering his sacrifice. We're not reenacting it. But that's what happens in the Mass. It is a ritual. It is a reenactment where Christ is sacrificed again and again and again and again and again and again, over and over, Day after day, 
It is the main duty of the priest. Did you know this? There is not an hour in the day around the world where a mass is not being performed and Jesus is being sacrificed. The canon law states it this way. It says, remembering that the work of redemption is continually accomplished in the mystery of the Eucharist sacrifice, priests are to celebrate frequently. Indeed, daily celebration is strongly recommended. Since even if the faithful cannot be present, it is the act of Christ and the church in which priests fulfill their principal function. And this really is the main question of, in the problem with the Catholic interpretation of, of the Last Supper, because it raises the question, does a sacrifice need to be offered daily, all the time, over and over? Or was a sacrifice of Jesus once and for all? One time for everybody, we don't need to do it again, but now we celebrate it as we remember it. The question is answered very clearly in the book of Hebrews, and that's where I'll turn. Now, again, I won't go to the catechism. We go biblically to this. And if you want to turn there to Hebrews chapter 7, there's a very clear answer about this. Do we sacrifice Christ daily or over and over or once and for all? The book of Hebrews, not surprisingly, was written to Hebrew people, Jewish people, and they had a similar question. This was not Catholicism, but their sacrificial system was built around Jewish priests who would perform those animal sacrifices. And though they said, Jesus, we believe he's the ultimate sacrifice, they still wondered. They're like, do we still need, though, to shed the blood over and over, day after day? Because we've been doing this thousands of years, this ritual. They'd done this for centuries. And Hebrews 7.23 says this. Now, there have been many of those priests, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede them. Now notice first it says Jesus saves us completely. We went over this last week, the assurance of salvation. doesn't matter what you've done, we're accepted through Christ. It says we come to God through him. In other words, Jesus made the role of earthly priests obsolete because Jesus said, I am the perfect priest in heaven and you can go to God directly through me. That has a lot of implications for Catholicism. First off, you've probably noticed we don't confess our sins to a human priest. We confess them directly to whom? Jesus. We don't need to pray to Mary or other saints because Jesus is our mediator. We pray directly to him. And notice it says, he lives to intercede for you. So sometimes the Catholic, the Catholic priest who I was talking to, he said, the saints are really all about, you know, you got to find someone you will identify with and they maybe have special favor with God and you pray to somebody like, like uh, Padre Pio who, who has suffered a lot and he can talk to God for you. Or pray to Mary and, and if Jesus is too busy. And this idea that part of the resurrection, one of the reasons Jesus was raised to life He's to intercede for you. That's one of his principal functions in heaven. He's at the right hand of God praying for you. Now watch this comparison. Hebrews says, unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices. What's the phrase? Day after day. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins. What's the phrase? Once for all when he offered himself. You see the comparisons the writer of Hebrews is making here. He's like, he's like, I get what you guys are asking. Do we need to go to a priest to go to God? Yes. A human one? No. A perfect one? Yes. That's Jesus. Day after day? No. Jesus did it. What's the phrase? Once and for all when he offered himself. He's the perfect priest because he gave the perfect sacrifice himself once for all. So ongoing sacrifice isn't necessary. And just to be real candidly, again, very respectfully, that's one of the main problems with the Mass. Because if this is a real sacrifice offered daily, as Catholic dogma teaches. 
it implies that Jesus' original sacrifice on the cross wasn't sufficient to cover all sin. And there's more left to pay for. We talked about this last week with purgatory. Remember Jesus' last three words on the cross? What were they? It is finished. Done. Paid in full. In other words, on the cross, Jesus cancels our sin, past, present, future, once and for all. If you flip the page to Hebrews 9, it says this. When Christ came as high priest, he entered the most holy place. What's the phrase? Once for all by his own blood. And you're going to see this phrase over and over. This is so critical to understand, guys. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And, 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 and some people always, by the way, they get skeeved out by that. They're like, why is God always after blood? Is like God like bloodthirsty? No, think again, think symbolically. There is no greater symbol of life than blood. Blood is what literally keeps us alive. And so when Jesus shed his blood, he was literally giving his life so that we wouldn't die spiritually. And that blood was shed once and for all. Verse 25 says, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Does this make sense to you? Shake your head. You get, you're getting this? I, I, don't know, I don't know, honestly, how this could be any clearer. I mean, think of what that phrase means. Once and for all. It's spring. And you know how I know? Not just Easter. Girl Scout cookies. Some of you know. My daughter is selling uh, Girl Scout cookies right now. Thin Mints. Anyone Thin Mint fans? Yeah, Samoas, Tagalongs, Good Times. Yeah, I know. Problems. The problem is my wife this year is responsible for getting the box of cookies. They're all shipped to our house for the entire troop. This is a problem for us. Because she puts the ones that have to be delivered in the car, but there are a lot left over, and we just, like, had this crazy binge. Uh, my son, like, you know, took all the Thin Mints. He's like this, like, ring of, you know, brown around his face. Dell, you eat Thin Mints? No. You know, kind of thing. Chase and I, we demolished the Samoas. We went cookie crazy. And so Colleen said, she goes, stop. She goes, this is nuts. She goes, I'm putting these in, 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 in the truck. I'm delivering those. And I'm giving all of you one box. And literally, we were like, one box for each of us? And she's like, no, Tim. One box <laughs> for all of you. So you better ration this. So we kind of voted. We wanted peanut butter tagalongs. We put them in the freezer because I love these things cold. So I come home the other night. I go in the freezer. The box is there. And I reach in and literally, it's, the, the, cell, the cellophane is there. Somebody finished them, puts the cellophane back in, closes it. And puts it in the freezer. I come upstairs and I'm like, hey, who? And my kid's like, not me. You know, they're like... And I'm like, there's got to be some left. And, and Colleen said, no, remember I said one, and, 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 and that's for everyone. And I was like, God, there's some left. There's got to be some. So we start looking around the house where everybody else kind of hides, and we found one empty other box uh, of Samoas, but they were gone too. So we start begging her. You know, it, it's like, come on, Mommy, we want another box. And, and she's like, Tim, don't do that. That's weird. Uh, you know, please. And finally, she literally said, as the kids were like dogging her, she's like, just everyone, Listen. I'm telling you, once and for all, there are no Samoas left. I gave you one, and it was for everyone. They're finished. They're done. Not a crumb in the house. The box is empty. Folks, that silly story is a picture of what the Bible is screaming at us. After Jesus died once, and he rose again once, there ain't nothing left in the box. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. 
And as the writer of Hebrews in 10.10, he puts it, he says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Let's read it together. What? Once for all. Do you get this? The Jewish priests had to continually make sacrifices day after day, again and again. It was a ritual like the Catholic Mass. Verse 11 says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. And again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. And what's it say? Which can never take away sins. And notice it says, this is a little funny little detail. It says, the priest stands, because the Jewish priest actually had to stand and offer the sacrifice. In contrast, in verse 12, it says, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, and that's intentional. The Bible's like, in contrast to priests who do this up and down, up and down, and sits in the day after day. When Jesus made a sacrifice on the cross, he sat down, and you sit down for one reason, when something is done forever. It's paid in full. It's completed. I am done. By one sacrifice, Hebrews says, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, The question is, what does the Bible say? Does a sacrifice need to be offered day after day after day? Or once and for all? Hebrews 10.18 answers definitively. It says, and where these sins have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. There's nothing left in the box. That's why we don't take communion every Sunday at Liquid real candidly, because our salvation doesn't depend on it. It doesn't. Literally, we celebrate communion pretty much at least once during every message series. That's our goal for the, for the calendar year. And we do that as a way of anchoring us back to the foundation of our faith. But the Catholic Church teaches that the ongoing sacrifice of the Mass, this is necessary for salvation. The Bible teaches that on the cross, Christ died for each and every one of us once for all. Once saved, always saved. That's something that our Catholic friends can never say with confidence. In our conversation with Father Brian, we just had an amazing time, and I am thankful to him. I was very taken back by his candor. Um, we were talking about salvation issues. What, what do you actually have to do to be saved? How, how does someone know they're going to heaven when they die? And, 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 and he was asking me about that, and I said, well, how does a Catholic know if, if they're saved? And his answer took, took me back a little bit. He said, well... No Catholic can ever say for sure that they're saved. I said, really? He said, yeah, no one can know for sure. They're in the process of being saved, but you have to continually receive grace through the sacraments and the the Eucharist. And quite honestly, if they fall away, they can lose it all. And I said, you mean like you can lose your salvation? He said, of course. I mean, what do you teach? Once saved, always saved kind of thing? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that, that's what the Bible teaches. And he said, I see why people go to your church. <laughs> and I, I laughed a little bit. And, and he said, you take away their sin. I was like, I don't take away anyone's sin. <laughs> but Jesus did once for all. Honestly, guys, there's a core issue for here, folks, because what you believe about this cup and this bread and what Christ's sacrifice accomplished will determine whether you settle for a religion that requires repetition and endless ritual or literally 
walks you into the freedom and settles your salvation once and for all. You don't come out of guilt, but you celebrate out of gratitude because salvation is 100% guaranteed. It's 100%. He said, well, what happens if the person falls away? He goes, it doesn't matter because it's not about the person. It's about the hand of God. He makes their salvation. He holds it secure. It's a new covenant. It doesn't depend on what we do, but on what Christ did. Amen? Okay. So with great respect, okay? Great respect to my Catholic uh, brothers. And, and you need, guys, to be wary of any faith system, any faith system that tells you Christ's sacrifice leaves you incomplete or that something else needs to be done to make you acceptable to God. When you believe in Christ, he makes you completely righteous in God's sight. And he secures your salvation once and for all. I am so thankful for what's happening in this, this church this morning. A woman came up to me and she said, I can't believe this. And she's crying. I said, what, what, what hit you? What struck you? And she said, you're talking that like God literally wipes away our sins like as that they were ever, they, they'd never been done. I said, that's what true forgiveness is. Only God does this. And she says, I've had two abortions in four years. And I've always prayed and asked God to forgive me. And I don't think I ever believed he would. But today I'm believing he forgave me. It may be because of that I can forgive myself. And she just starts bawling. She goes, is that really true? You know it's the truth. It's the power of the gospel. Anything else is man-made because it's tit for tat, cause, effect, consequence, behavior, fear, punishment. And this is just love. It is literally the body and blood of Christ broken for you. You have nothing to offer and he gives you everything. So I guess that's my question for you. As we come to the communion table, have you settled that issue in your mind? Because these symbols demand a decision. I mean, have you settled that question of your salvation once and for all? Tom Hemmer has. Some of you know Tom. He serves on our security team here at Liquid. And Tom grew up Catholic. And for 25 years, he never believed he could say with any confidence that he was saved. He was led to believe that, you know, his good works were never quite good enough. And finally, after two decades, he gave up on faith entirely. But by God's grace, over 25 years later, Tom settled that issue in his heart once and for all. My name is Tom Hammer. Uh, I grew up um, in a Catholic family. Uh, I went to uh, Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. My parents were both uh, devout Catholics. Uh, I have uh, two aunts that are nuns. And I have a cousin who was a priest at one time. I remember serving as an altar boy, struggling to memorize the Latin Mass to be able to recite it. I loved the smell of the incense. And to be perfectly honest, some of the altar boys would sneak the wine a little bit in the back room periodically if we could get away with it. But, uh, but I kind of enjoyed that part. I enjoyed you know, putting on the, the, uh, the cassock and surplus and so forth. And it was, it was just kind of interesting at that time in my life. Other than going for a wedding or a funeral, I mean, the last time that I actually just walked into a church to go to Mass is probably, it's got to be 20, 25 years ago, I would think. I just didn't connect with it. Um, I, I, I didn't really like the kind of ritualized prayer, the music didn't particularly connect with me, but particularly the message. I mean, I, the one thing I really want, if I walk into a church, the thing I want is a message that means something to me. I started coming to Liquid about a year and a half ago. My wife and I were riding, uh, riding in the car, and she had one of the CDs. So she started playing it, and I remember listening to it. I said, wow, that's a really good message. I really like that. She came home one Sunday, and I said, uh, would it be all right if I went with you to Liquid? I just want to kind of check this out. You know, I want to put a face with the, with the voice, you know. 
And she gave me this really strange look, and she said, you know it's a church, don't you? And I said, well, yeah, I know it's a church. And she said, well, okay, yeah, you can go with me. And she seemed like a little kind of choked up, and, and she said, I said, what's the matter? And she said, well, I've been praying for this for like 25 years for you to go to church. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the music. The message was awesome. I think the clarity and the simplicity of the messages was a lot different from what I was used to in the Catholic Church. Almost every one of them, Janet and I would sit there and listen to the message, and there'd be something that was said that we would look at each other and say, wow, that's like right out of our lives. One of the biggest struggles I, of my, in my faith that I was struggling with um, was just trying to figure out whether I, would, whether I would be saved or not. And I kind of believed that you had to earn your way into heaven. Specifically, this most recent series on the Catholic questions really, really connected with me. I think particularly the message about, uh, around being saved was very meaningful for me. The line between the laws of the church and biblical law were always kind of blurred. They didn't really, you know, they, they kind of taught everything as being equal. And I kind of enjoyed casting all of that off and just focusing on the biblical teachings that do cover in liquid. When Jesus was on the cross and talking with the thief, that just really connected with me that if he could, if he would save a thief like that who has never, hasn't done good deeds in his life, then there's probably hope for me. <laughs> My name is Tom Hemmer, and after 25 years, I believe in Jesus Christ once and for all. Can we hear it for Tom? Awesome stuff, Tom. Awesome, awesome stuff. After 25 years, I can say I believe in Jesus Christ once and for all. Forgiven. There's nothing left. Can you say that? When you put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, he becomes your Lord and Savior once and for all. There is no need to constantly feel guilty for past sins or fear future failures. Once forgiven, you're forgiven once and for all. There's no need to constantly worry if you're going to lose your faith. Once you're saved, you're saved what? Once and for all. Today, every person in this room at each of our campuses, you are invited to the table as a symbol of your faith to come forward, regardless of your background. If you're Protestant, Catholic, you don't know what you are. Anyone who puts their trust in the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all is invited. Jesus says, dine with me, dine on me. The bread, a symbol of my body, broken for you. The cup, a symbol of my blood, shed for your sins. So as a symbol of your salvation, you're going to come forward. You're going to actually take the bread, and you'll simply dip it into the cup and eat it. And that, there's, there's nothing magic that happens inside here. It's what's happened inside of here. If you believe that, if you believe that in your heart, you're welcome here. Maybe it's for the first time. Maybe this is a moment of decision for some of you to settle in your heart and mind once and for all what you really believe. No more wondering, am I good enough? And the answer is, no, you're not. But Jesus was, and he is. So settle that question of your salvation once and for all and come forward to celebrate with your new family, okay? We're inviting you. When you come up the center aisle, um, you're going to see that there are whiteboards. And we thought it would be fitting to end this series by inviting you to write your name on the board as a sign that you are trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation once and for all. You'll see Hebrews 10.10 written on those. So as you come up, you'll just take the pen and you'll sign your name. These are whiteboards, but the Bible says 
that your name is actually written in permanent ink in God's book of life. And it can never be erased. You've been saved by grace through faith forever. So if you put your faith in Christ, write your name, and then receive these gifts from God because they are for you. The body and blood of Christ once and for all. Let me pray and we will celebrate together. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. (laughs) It's all about Jesus. Lord, all of our sins went on Jesus. All of Jesus' righteousness went over to us. We now pray to Jesus. We know Jesus is interceding for us right now. That, Lord, he's our priest and our savior, and he was the sacrifice. And so we're coming forward in faith as a way of saying we believe. We trust. We have faith once and for all. I pray right now for every man and woman who comes forward that this would be a special time where they would draw close to you, Father. We know that you are present here. Just because wherever two or three of your children are, there you are in the midst of them. So I pray that this would be a powerful moment for them, confirming what has already happened in their heart, that they are saved through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that and pray that in his name. And all God's people said together, amen.